0: Hi everyone, and welcome to Craig's Benedict, the podcast about virtuous living in a godless world. With me today, I have Jabron Sheikh, who is a doctor finishing up his residency at the University of Maryland. Hi, Jabron.
1: Hey, how are you?
0: So today we're going to talk about the healthcare industrial complex. Why we get so much, uh, why we pay so much money for such shitty healthcare. Um, my idea of the thing and i'm I'm, we're going to do something new i'm going to try to advance a thesis try to get right into things instead of getting a whole bunch of background Um, my conception of the healthcare program is that a lot of people have stuck their fingers into it uh created a lot of perverse incentives and uh, as a result nobody's nobody's uh uh, accountable for uh their performance or the money that's spent or uh the quality of care or the, the homes that it breaks up so you got insurance companies and they're um They'll, they have a bunch of nefarious practices that they do to keep costs down. Um, hospitals are just trying to jack up profits by creating as many sick people as they can and over treating and undertreating. and uh, in the meantime there's not a lot of oversight over the doctors and so people are leaving sponges inside people's bodies and uh, hand washing is an issue and so as a result we have this big jangled uh, healthcare care process with a bunch of people and they're all trying to do different things and nobody's like there's no incentives to line everybody up towards good and sensible and affordable health care. So that's my conception as uh, somebody who knows nothing about the subject, Gibran. Um, how did I do?
1: So I think you have, there, there's a lot to unpack there. Um, the first thing I would say is that I think you come at it from a little bit of a, a cynical perspective. And I think that some of that cynicism is absolutely warranted, right? Okay. You, we, you can look at a lot of our um, our healthcare outcomes in terms of things that we care about um, uh, in terms of life expectancy and a variety of other measures. And we don't really perform that well. And certainly when you consider um, value-based care, and that's like a hot new concept in in medicine, right? So when you take quality, right, and you divide it by cost, you get value, right? Mm -hmm. So in much of the United States, we have actually very high quality care. It's extremely heterogeneously distributed, as you would expect with anything in America. There are some pockets of the country that have amazing quality, other parts that are, you know, almost third world levels. But uniformly across the board, it's crazy expensive, just way, way more expensive than any other uh, developed uh, uh, country. And so, you know, if you take that to the next step, right, pretty much it's, it's low-value care across the board. There are some places and some health systems, Kaiser, for example, um, where, the, where the value uh, of the care is, is better. But the quality varies a lot, but the cost is uniformly high. So you get kind of medium to low-value low care no matter where you go.
0: Um, so you're saying the right, quality is very good, and the, that means that the, val- the efficiency is bad, but the, the actual product you're getting is really nice.
1: So again, I, I, yes, but it really depends on where you're talking about. Who, sure. who is insuring you? What is, What is the healthcare infrastructure that you have um, access to? What is your health literacy? Um, you know, kind of interpersonal relationships. Do you have a doctor who really cares? Or did you happen to get a doctor who, who doesn't really care that much about you in, individually? Um, do you have continuity of care? You've been seeing the same pediatrician or family doctor for many, many years who knows you specifically? Or are you getting your care in an urgent care center where it's a doc in a box where you pay 50 bucks and get your you know, cold treated or your high blood pressure, you know, managed or mismanaged, right? So that, you know what I'm saying? That that yeah. varies tremendously. Um, the quality can can be excellent, and I, I have seen some instances of really excellent healthcare. I've seen some really egregious examples of very poor healthcare, but the cost is kind of uniformly high, right? But going back to your original point, it's easy to look at it from a perspective of cynicism, but I think that um, the different players and, and we'll, I'll introduce it now and, and we'll kind of touch on them, I'm sure, at length throughout. The different um, players here are really the patients and the patient advocates, right? Physicians, the hospital and hospital system, and then the payers, which is either the government or the um, or private insurance, right? I, I would also include the VA in there as well because they, they provision a lot of our healthcare. Um, I would then add the pharmaceutical industry, which has, you know, which is a sort of unique phenomenon in America, right? Um, some of it is similar to how defense spending works, where America spends a lot of money on research and development of uh, the military, and the rest of the world kind of benefits from that. We, we are sort of a net exporter of our, you know, military um, uh, goods and services. So it's kind of the same way with pharmaceuticals. So we, we spend, you know, tremendously more on pharmaceutical research and development, mostly in the private sector. And then we sort of export that and, and, the, and we su- sort of subsidize the, the um, you know, subsidize uh, uh, pharmaceutical innovation for the rest of the world. Unfortunately, the American taxpayer or the American patient will have to pay for that, uh, that subsidy to the rest of the world. But it's a little bit more nuanced than, than just the pharmaceutical companies taking, uh, taking the American uh, patient for a ride. I mean, it, it is a little bit more nuanced than that.
0: Um, so I think, so I, I think I just wanted to dive in right here. My uh, right wing people will say that uh, health care has gotten worse because of regulation and the costs just skyrocket as a result of that. Um, it really sounds like we're not that the costs are rising because of other reasons. Is that yeah. is that what I'm getting from you? It's not at all because of like uh, Obamacare or uh, anything like that. It's really just other things.
1: Yeah, so I think there are a couple of factors that play here, and and any one of these topics could be like a, a totally separate discussion. And a healthcare policy, you know, analyst maybe spend their entire career studying one of these issues. But very briefly, uh, there are a couple of things that are happening kind of simultaneously. One is that um, Americans are just living longer. The we, we are living longer, and so are the rest of the world. Right, as you get older, your disease burden gets increased. Right. You know, if you are living to the ripe old age of 50 or 60, your, your disease profile and what you die from and how long you live with chronic diseases is fundamentally different than if you're living until you're 80 or 90 years old.
0: Right. Um,
1: right. and the, you know, so that's when you have people with more and, and, and American population is a sicker population overall than the rest of the world. We have very high rates of obesity, heart disease, and a, and a wide range of, uh, chronic health conditions. Right. Um, We also don't have great primary and preventative health care. And so a lot of diseases like diabetes, hypertension, um, that's your high blood pressure, other high cholesterol that could be managed and controlled from an early stage. What we end up seeing is the sort of late and very expensive consequences of it. Things like heart attacks, strokes, um, you know, related things that are sort of the end term consequences of of 30 years of, of mismanagement or total lack of management of your high blood pressure or, or diabetes. Right. And so we have this aging population, we have a sick population. And then the other thing at play here is that innovation in America is amazing. Right. And again, I'll bring you back to that other point that I made that we subsidize the rest of the world in terms of innovation. So we come out with um, our pharmaceutical companies rather uh, are coming out with these amazing life prolonging drugs and devices, um, things like targeted therapy for cancer. Um, I'm, I'm in dermatology, so melanoma, it's like a great time to have melanoma <laughs> you know, compared to historically. <laughs> and the reason, the reason I say that is that it, it, I say it obviously in a little bit of a tongue-in-cheek way, but if you have metastatic melanoma um, 10 years ago, it is an absolute death sentence. Like you are going to be dead reliably, you know, 10 to 15 months after you get that diagnosis, right? But we have new immunotherapies and new um, what are called checkpoint inhibitors and a variety of things that I, I won't get into the nitty gritty of. But the bottom line is, is we have revolution, a revolutionary paradigm shifting ways of treating things like metastatic melanoma. So people are living longer and longer and we have these durable remissions. But of and course, that, that's very things,
0: expensive, right?
1: Oh, my God, it's expensive. It's like this immunotherapy is like a 100 or $150,000 a year. And you think you just stop the therapy, you know, like Jeez, a, yeah, a, yeah. And so, with um, another set of diseases that we treat are the sort of auto-inflammatory, autoimmune diseases. So I'm sure you've heard of biologics, things like Humira, and other things that you may know.
0: Maybe Never, not, not a single time. No.
1: Well, if you watch, if you watch any television, you will see constant advertising for this class of medications. Okay. Which is also a type of um, immune therapy where we can target specific molecules that drive these diseases and they're incredibly effective and
0: um, well, I just, this is really cool and all really interesting. Um, then my, my, my conception was that, uh, you know, doctors make mistakes, uh, very, uh, um, consistently. So like for a couple stats that I heard and you know, there are lies, damn lies and statistics. Right. But, uh, a resident, one in five residents will make a critical error in judgment and one in 20, We'll make a critical error in judgment that will kill somebody. And um, that, that's a pretty high rate. Um, I mean, you know they see thousands of patients and so maybe that's really not so high of a rate. But if you compare it to like uh, mistakes in the um, I, I always hear the, the analogy made to um, air traffic control and pilots, how there's like the failure rate is like 0. .00, you know, just zeros all the way down. And, um, you know, you hear stories about, you know, I, I mean, I read headlines, you know, I don't really get deep into these things about like how common it is for um, surgery equipment to get left inside of a body um, after a surgery. Like what, what is the disconnect there then? If, if there's all these breakthroughs, how come human error is, is consist- so consistent in, uh, in this industry?
1: Yeah. So, a, a lot to unpack there, and it's a really interesting um, topic. Uh, Atul Gawande and other, um, other researchers have sort of explored this idea really at length. So I would, turn, I would uh, um, encourage your uh, viewers to, to look at, um, for example, the Checklist Manifesto, which actually applies that same kind of um, the sort of uh, uh, paradigm that, that they use in um, the kind of commercial uh, aviation industry and try to, tries to apply it to medicine. Um, because there, there are a lot of overlaps. So I have, I, I have actually a lot of direct personal experience with this. Um, I, so to give you a little bit of background on my training, right? So I just completed a year of internal medicine, which is a requirement to be a dermatologist. So I did a year of internal medicine. Now I'm in my specialty training, right? Um, and as an internal medicine resident and as an internal medicine intern, which is your first year of uh, residency, you really get to see, medicine, you know, in the trenches, so to speak, right? And so you you get to see things like um, handoffs, which I'll uh, elaborate on in just a second. You get to see where these potential sources of error are, right? So I can't really comment on the surgical error um, sort of uh, uh, milieu, right? Why do do we have wrong site surgery, right? Why do we have... uh, you know, someone leaves a sponge or another uh, piece of equipment into, into a human being. It, it should never happen. They're called never events, right? And I will say that one of the ways of addressing it, because I think people, I think everybody agrees that it should never happen, is applying some of that same reasoning from commercial aviation. So checklists and timeouts are the hot new thing. And they really have, I mean, there is now good quality evidence to show that it, it's been effective. What is a timeout? Of- So a timeout is this. So whenever I, for example, in dermatology, I do skin cancer uh, excisions, right? Before I put scalpel to skin, a nurse comes in, and it's a requirement. You cannot begin the surgery until that. We'll come in and we'll say, um, who is the patient? And we say, this is the name of the patient. What is their medical record number? What is their date of birth, right? And the patient has to confirm this. What are we doing today? What is the anatomic site of it and then also ensures that the patient has capacity and is making the decision with sort of full decision-making capacity, right? And so, they, you, you know, sometimes with some of these older, you know, 90-year-old people that were kind of questionably cutting skin cancers out, of it's kind of sort of questionable how appropriate it is, but, you know, they, they have to, they have, to have difficulty remembering exactly why they're there and what exactly we're doing. So, it, you know, it's sometimes it's a little bit eye-opening. So that's sort of the surgical world. Um, and, and I agree, it should never happen, but I think that there are sort of exciting sort of applications from commercial aviation. And it really has reduced those like never events. Now, what I want to talk to you about is is handoffs, right? Because that's what I have. I have the most um, experience with that. And that's what I have kind of on the ground experience with. So a handoff is this. So I go in at 630 in the morning, right? And I will take care of a list of 10 patients or so that these are sort of my patients. And I have supervision of the residents, often direct supervision. If it's a shitty resident, then I have limited supervision. And then above that, somewhere in the clouds is the attending, if you can get a hold of them, right? And they they come in for an hour or two a day, talk to you about the plan, maybe dictate a bunch of things that need to be done. And then for the other 23 hours of the day or 22 hours of the day, it's left to someone like me, or maybe someone directly above me to make kind of like on all the like on the ground decisions, right? The patient is complaining of chest pain, the patient has a fever, the patient has a bloody bowel movement, you know, you don't bother the attending with these kind of like, uh, the, the minutiae. Right. And so there are definitely systems in place and some redundancy that, that that help out. You can always call, for example, the ICU team or you have different people that you could talk to if you if you really feel like you're getting into hot water. Um, but a lot of the time it's just me supervising the patient. Right. And if you're a competent intern or resident and I, and I like to think I was, I, I think I did pretty well. Um, you get to know your patients really well. You know them in, or out, in and out, you know, their medical history, you know, the things that they're allergic to in terms of uh, medications Uh, You kind of have a sense of the the 30,000 foot view of the plan. And you also have like a specific uh, understanding of their, the particulars of their care. So if they complain of chest pain, but you know that they have heartburn, like every day reliably, they tell you like, yeah, I I have heartburn. If you give me um, a Tums, I'm going to feel better. Then when they come in and, and the nurse pages you like, doctor, doctor, the patient is complaining of chest pain. Even, you know, even though they may have a long history of cardiac problems, heart problems, you, you know, well, why don't we give them a Tums and reevaluate in 30 minutes? Okay. Now, on a good day at 5 or 5.30, I am ready to leave the hospital and go home and, like, live my life, whatever, you know, modicum of life I can hold on to, right? <laughs> yeah. So what I do is I then will take my list of patients and sign it out to a person who is receiving patients from three or four other people like me for a total of 40 or 50 patients, right? And you have, you know, in many cases, you're in a rush to get home. In many cases, they're starting to get pages and a bunch of other things. Um, And they're admitting new patients in the the emergency room at that same time. And so they're managing 40 or 50 patients. Um, Now, you just cannot possibly tell all the, like, nuance and detail of a patient's care in that situation. You can immediately imagine where that errors are going to come up, right? You either get... Overdiagnosis and testing. For example, let me give you the example of um, uh, the, the the chest pain. They the nurse pages this. You know, I I I signed out thirty minutes ago, and then the nurse pages of this this uh, on call resident. Says, look, the, the patient has a history of high blood pressure and a previous heart attack, and is now complaining of chest pain. Well, they're going to err on the side of caution. It's totally understandable. And unless I told them specifically, look, this guy give him Tums if he has chest pain. They're going to do what? They're gonna order a bunch of laboratory tests. They're gonna get an EKG. They're gonna do all the things. Part of it because of the sort of litigious medical legal environment that we live in, and part of it because they, you know, they, you know, they want to cover their ass and they want to do good by their patient. They don't want to have a miss. You know, they don't want to uh, have that on their conscience. Right. And so that leads to a lot of unnecessarily expensive care. Going back to the previous, uh, uh, this sort of redundant, unnecessary care, um, but also there could be situations in which they are managing away ma- uh, a bunch of other patients and things sort of slip under the rug, right? Or things sort of slip through the cracks. And so you get a situation in which the patient gets way sicker, right? Or maybe I'll give you, I'll give you an example. Maybe they went to go admit a patient in the emergency room and they go and see him and talk to him for a few minutes. Right. And they look, yeah, he looks okay. Maybe he's a little sick. He's a little, his heart's beating a little fast. I'm a little concerned. And then all of a sudden they get that page from my nurse saying, hey, uh, this, this patient with a history of heart disease is complaining of chest pain. They go, oh shit, I got to go run up and evaluate that. And then they go do that and then they get a thousand other pages. And then it's a few hours before they go back to the emergency room. Now, ideally someone in the emergency room, one of the ER doctors or the ER nurse is watching that patient. But let me tell you in, in practical experience, as soon as the emergency room signs it out to us, they don't give a shit about that patient anymore. It's like, It's well, well, Of course, they have a, they have a Uh, you know, a floodgate (laughs) of other patients walking through the door, they've already signed it out and made it someone else's responsibility. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, it's four hours later. And now that like low grade fever has turned into full blown sepsis. And meanwhile, they were they were managing this like fake chest pain. So you can see that this is like a major source of medical error are these transition points
0: can care. i just uh, uh admit to you so i'm gonna i'm gonna let the audience in on how the sausage is made we did some preparation maybe mm-hmm. two or three text messages back and forth and you said that handoffs were a major source of error and in my head i was like jabron how can you take grandpa rick and hand him off to somebody who's not his family i thought you were discharging people to strangers yeah <laughs> that was what well, a, you're not, a handoff you're not, totally,
1: error. you're not totally wrong and and so disposition and handoffs are, are, are hand in hand. It's actually not, it's not, it's, it's a subtle, but it's it, it's not a totally ridiculous point. So when we have a patient, Grandpa Joe, it's always very nice and well when his uh, son and his uh, daughter in law and maybe grandma is waiting and they're like, oh, so we're so happy that you recovered from your pneumonia. Let's take you home and, and press your feet and, and make you tea. But unfortunately, the reality of our like highly fragmented, like, lonely culture is that there are a lot of Grandpa Joes that just have no one left, right? And now Grandpa Joe, who was found covered in his feces for three days, you know, in his, in his apartment by someone like, you know, like wondering what's going on in there, you know, we, we recovered, you know, we treated his pneumonia, we treated his sepsis, we got him, uh, you know, uh, tuned him up, so to speak. And now where are we sending him? We're sending him right back to his house where he has no continuity of care, where he has no uh, sort of uh, social support. Um, and it, and it's just sort of a setup for the same thing to happen a few weeks or a few months down the line. He's going to take his medication. He probably has a little dementia, right? But we're pretending that he doesn't just to get him on on the way, right? Get get him out of the hospital. Otherwise, Jesus that's a
0: Do you Christ, know Christ, Devon? Uh, this I'm, is really dark.
1: Yeah, no, but the thing is, it's like these are the kind of like I'll, I'll give you I'll give you an example, right? So you you'll get these patients, right? And um, there's a phenomenon of sundowning, which is like. A relatively normal thing that happens in hospitals that people that are kind of in in advanced age, they're maybe 70s or 80s or something like that, as it becomes nighttime, they become a little disoriented. And, And hospitals are very disorienting places. There are lights and sounds and people coming into your room and, you know, poking you with needles. It's a very disorienting place. And so people will get, you know, a little disoriented and then maybe they don't know where they are. Maybe they start getting very agitated. And the next morning they look okay, right? Now, the next morning they're ready for discharge and they're ready to go home. Are you going to work up that whole thing and, like, do a whole dementia evaluation and do, like, that whole, you know, laboratory workup and keep them in the hospital uh, for several days? And you may say, well, Jabron, that's so dark. Why, why, would, why would you deny them that care? Well, that's going to be several more days in the hospital. And, 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 you know, if you do discover that they have dementia, maybe you refer them to the right, right person, right? But the bottom line is, is that's thousands and thousands of dollars of just staying in the hospital and going back to the same point. I wonder why American healthcare is so expensive. Right. It's, it's yeah. these kind of long hospital stays or care at the end of life um, is, is really where a, a large percentage of our healthcare dollars are spent.
0: Oh, that's really interesting. Um, I've never thought about, like, the kind of cultural impacts of uh, American society that would have on the healthcare system. That must be a huge burden to just take somebody with dementia and you can't you can't just send them home because mm-hmm. there's nobody there. And so, you know, it's like, what, 14 million dollars a night in the hospital. So it, that would...
1: there, there are different numbers that are quoted. But I actually looked it up once because I was curious. Because sometimes we have these patients just sit on our service, right? We call them rocks, right? I mean, they literally, they're, they're, and that's what they are. They just sit there. We don't get labs on them. We go in, listen to their heart and lungs, and go, all right. Well, we'll see what happens tomorrow, you know. And they're just waiting for disposition. They're waiting for a nursing home to take them. They're waiting for, you know. Uh, cousin Gutierrez in Florida to call back and maybe take them to Florida, or they're, you know, they're, they're healthy enough that they don't need to be in the hospital, but they're sick enough that it would be inappropriate to just discharge them to the street and say, good luck to you, right? And the bottom line is, is that um, they're, it's, it, they're, they're very difficult, and they, they become very expensive to the healthcare system. So I looked it up one time. I was like, what is the cost? Just like the bare minimum, assuming you're doing absolutely nothing for the patient, just a hospital bed per night, and it obviously varies tremendously, like everything else in the healthcare system. I was in New York doing my training, which is obviously much more expensive, but it's about a thousand dollars a night. Well, that's uh, not about bad. A, it's not yeah, not bad. But you could also stay in Central Park West in the Berg, uh, Bergdorf Goodman uh, for like seven or eight hundred bucks a night.
0: So but, but you is know, that, is that a hotel?
1: Yeah, it's like a like a five star. You could st- stay in Trump okay. Tower for a lot right. less, right? Okay. So Great. why yeah. is Medicare Medicaid paying for like much a much better and right. more expensive
0: right
1: you know you, you understand what i'm saying like it's, it's way saying. more expensive yeah. than a luxury hotel and, and they're not and,
0: paying for themselves right because oh
1: they... no, no 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 no! i assure you when you when you see your line item deductions on your um uh your pay your you know uh pay stub when it says medicare that's you paying for them to just sit in the hospital a lot of the time and a lot of other valuable useful care i'm not i don't want to d- disparage it at all but what i'm saying is that 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 is a substantial portion of our medicare medicaid dollars is paying for um, is paying for unnecessary hospital stays.
0: Wow, uh, that's really interesting. I, I wanted to. I think it's a good time to talk about kind of the capitalist, uh, libertarian um, argument that, like, you look at LASIK. Um, you know, their 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 error rates are, are shrink amazingly, and the price has gone down amazingly. It's it's it, and the, the reason for that they say is this is a market solution. Uh, the fact that you're paying for it, that you can pick who you go to, and it's your dollars that you're spending means that costs go down and quality goes up. Can you apply this kind of, um, it, will, will this logic or these invisible hands carry through to the healthcare system at large?
1: Yeah, so it's an interesting example, um, and to sort of elaborate on why LASIK is so ripe for uh, for this type, these type of market-based solutions, um, I can actually even apply some of my own field in dermatology because you can imagine a lot of dermatology can be uh, sort of monetized and you can have sort of predictable cash flows in, 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 a, in a way, and, and you can have competition and price transparency and a variety of other things. So LASIK, first of all, like the components that make this doable, right? Just to spell it out, are price transparency. You know how much it is. Like I assure you, if you wanted to know LASIK in Greater Baltimore. You will find competitive pricing and you will find the price is just very clear. This is what we charge for it, right? And when you have that price transparency and when you have competition, people are pretty much offering more or less the same service unless they're, you know, someone is blinding, you know, people, they're going to be very rapidly eliminated from the market, right? So you can be pretty sure that the ones that are, that are sort of left standing by the time you're looking for LASIK are all doing a pretty good job, right? Right. Um, maybe their office is a little nicer. Maybe it's, maybe it's a little shittier. But the bottom line is, is that you're getting really clear pricing. You're having competitive pricing, right? And it's like a very specific elective that's essential, right? A very specific elective procedure, right? You don't have to get LASIK. It's nice if you, if you want it. Um, it's cool. I thought about it myself. But it's certainly not an essential. I'm perfectly fine with contact lenses or glasses, right? So uh, elective procedures, um, things that have a very fixed price, uh, or, sorry, not a fixed price, but rather a very transparent price and things that you can apply competition to are sort of right for that. So dermatology and plastic surgery, we have so many examples of that, right? So if you want cosmetic filler injections or Botox, right, that's a thing, that's something that you can commodify super easily, right? I, I'm willing to inject you for $14 a unit um, in order to fix your uh, eyebrow uh, or so rather your forehead uh, uh, wrinkles. I'm going to need 20 units 20 times 14 that's what i'm going to charge you now your dentist may be able to offer it to you for nine dollars a unit um and you then you have a choice you can say i cannot get this it's totally elective it's a cosmetic thing i can go to my dentist who probably doesn't do a lot of it but is offering it much cheaper i I could potentially have a very bad looking job done and that would not be desirable or i can go to a trained dermatologist who doesn't who does this you know every day presumably and, and has a lot of experience with it right and so the and idea for
0: everyone that- who's interested uh will have his uh uh contact information below 14 dollars botox everybody
1: yeah. i don't, don't quote me on the number but yeah. the bottom line the bottom line is is that um you, you can see that again competition price transparency it's an elective procedure
0: is now- this why uh technology for breast implants have gotten so much better because i've noticed you know when I was younger, the, the, the breast implants weren't so great on the porn stars. Seems like prices have really dropped on that. So
1: Yeah, I think I, I think that just like any technology becomes mature and in late stage capitalism, I feel like <laughs> breast breast implantation is one thing. I feel like we're we're living in the the, the golden era of breast implantation.
0: Yeah, take that, so. communists. You want if you like uh, you know, if you're if you're paying for premium pornography, it's because of capitalism that, that
1: exactly. Made it I don't know. I can I tell you I don't know how we can innovate breast implantation maybe spurt <laughs> uh, out uh, chocolate motor or something I don't know I don't know where we're going with breast implants from from here you know right. I, I don't I don't know how it goes but anyways okay so those are examples of things that are easily commodified right um, things that are pr- relatively clear and I think the most essential thing is that they are elective procedures right. okay now take something like um, you are very sadly diagnosed tomorrow with a, um, with colon cancer, horrendous, very sad, terrible, right? Now you are immediately, uh, facing a completely, uh, new set of situations. One, the, you were living your life and, uh, you, you know, maybe old age is something in the distant remote future. Now you're suddenly uh, confronting your mortality, right? That is not a rat. No one is in a rational mindset when they're confronting their mortality. Right. That's the first thing. The second thing is that, presumably, if you're a rational person and you enjoy living, right, you have to do something about this. Right. Whether it's chemotherapy or surgical option or radiotherapy, you have to do something about it. Right. The third thing is that time is presumably of the essence. Right. You know that the cancer is 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 there and it's only going to spread. Right. It's only going to get worse and more difficult to treat. Right. And so maybe you live in New York City or you live in Los Angeles, like where you live, right? And you have a lot of different options, right? Um, but maybe you live in a geographically uh, more isolated place in the United States and you don't have that many options, right? Well, you could shop around for several weeks or several months, but meanwhile, those cells are multiplying doing their thing, right? And, and, and you know, it's just a matter of time until it becomes metastatic and becomes a whole other volcano. Next thing, you are insured, right? You're getting insurance from one of three places. The VA, which is a relatively small and trivial part of our insurance milieu, so I don't really want to talk about it. Uh, if you're like most Americans, you're getting it from your job, right? And it's totally non-potable, which is to say that you can't take that insurance when you leave your job. So you're totally bound to that job, uh, especially if you have a chronic disease and You need you need the insurance uh, to pay for it. Or you're getting it from Medicare, Medicaid, Medicare if you're over 65, um, Medicaid if you make... Uh, it depends on uh, individual states, but it's usually around 1.2, 1.4 times the federal poverty line, around $25,000, right? Or you're just totally uninsured and you're fucked. But like, I, I don't even want to talk about those people because that's just sap, right? Well, what Obama about what Trump,
0: about private insurance? Is that or is, where does private, that fit in all this?
1: So private insurance um, is through your job, right? Most Americans are insured through their job, and then you have this sort of group of, of freelancers and independent people or people who's, who work for small companies that don't have it. And that's the idea of the exchanges, mm-hmm. right? The Obamacare uh, said, you know, basically insurance companies are very, uh, you, you work in, you, you, you sort of touch on finance because you're in accounting, right? You know all about actuarial risk, right? Yeah. So the idea is that if me as an individual person says, hey, I would like to be insured, please, an insurance company is going to be like, we don't know anything about you. You're a huge liability, right? But if everybody at, um, you know, University of Maryland has to be insured through their insurance, you know, you can spread the risk, the risk and it's portfolio risk, right? So, the, the, the exchanges tried to address that by sort of pooling the risk and saying, look, everybody has to be insured, that's the, that's the mandate, right? Um, and then we, let's establish these state level kind of in, in, insurance uh, exchanges that allow you to get insurance in kind of a reasonably affordable well, a, a way and you cannot be denied for pre-existing conditions. So, that was the trade-off, everybody has to be insured, insurance companies are happy, right? So if they get a lot of healthy young people, uh, can't deny pre-existing conditions, the sort of sicker people can actually get some level of insurance, right? Okay. So now if you have a certain, I, I know this from my own experience, right? I'm insured by University of Maryland, right? There is a very limited set of, of uh, ho- university-based hospitals that are actually very good that I can get my care for my, if my wife has a baby, that's where we're getting our care from. If I have high blood pressure, right, that's where we're getting our care from. If I get... Uh, hit by a car, that's where I'm getting my care from, right? If I go outside that system, it is financially ruinous, right? And I mean that in the quite literal sense of the word, right? I, as a, like a doctor, wow, how great am I doing? If I get hit with a $200,000 bill, that's, that's, you know, catastrophic for anyone, right? And so the bottom line is that you ha- you're you very much bound by your, um, your sort of particular um, insurance milieu that you that, you're, that you, that you have to go, you go into. So I hope I've described to you, and I, I don't know if this answered your question, that the sort of non-electiveness uh, electiveness of the procedure, right, the urgency, the geographic limitations, and the particular payer model that we exist in makes it so that it's just, like, hard to turn uh, colon cancer treatment and chemotherapy and, like, commodify it and turn it into the same, like, you know, um, sort of capitalist, libertarian paradigm that, that we'd love to apply to, to healthcare. You know, it just right. doesn't, it doesn't work.
0: All those economic things you talk about, like the, you know, the liquidity of it, not liquidity, but substitutes, you know, and the non-monopoly, you know, the, the competition that, that really does erode a lot of that. So, you're, that's very interesting. So, it's all these greedy doctors who are like, well, you're going to die soon. So, what, you know, the bill right. is the bill. Um, is, that, is that, that's not exactly it, but is that, is that an, it's, I mean. So
1: I, so, I can tell you from my own experience as, as, a, as like a, you know, quote unquote, greedy doctor, right? who works with a lot of quote-unquote greedy doctors on a day-to-day basis? I think it's a it's a very cynical attitude, which is to say that our, like the reason we go into medicine and the reason we love our work and we derive meaning from it, right? There's a lot of burnout, and that's like a separate sort of crisis in medicine right now, probably due to a lot of these other issues that we're discussing, right? But the vast majority of people that I met at medical school and residency and, and kind of like interacted with at professional conferences legitimately want to do well by their patient. They want to make them... Uh, uh they they want to make them better and and of course they want to live uh financially prosperous lives they've worked very hard and they want to be uh, they want financial remuneration for it right what what happens is i think more on the like what is available for an individual patient so let me give you a, a specific example from my, my world, right? And I, I use the dermatology uh, world as a paradigm, but you can apply this to a wide range of other fields. Oncology is probably the best, best example, right? So in dermatology, right? If you come to me tomorrow and you say, I have uh, psoriasis, right? It's a new diagnosis. It's probably not going to be life threatening, but I'm sure, you know, you've touched on uh, these topics with other, um, you know, uh, with other guests that you've had. You know, masculinity is sort of this fragile, you know, sort of nebulous idea. Now, imagine you have red scaly plaques all over your your genitals and your, you know, buttocks and stuff like that. It's sort of suddenly Asian masculinity becomes, you know, or any type of masculinity, it just becomes a totally different conversation entirely, right? So I can offer you some medications of a wide range of medications, right? Um, On the one hand, I can offer you sort of dirt cheap, a few dollar a month medication, and it will do a pretty good job, right? Maybe I get you 70 or 80% clear of those scales and, and that stuff, right? However, you are constantly being bombarded with the latest and the greatest, mm-hmm. right? You have a perfectly functional iPhone 6, but you want the iPhone 10X, you know, blah, 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 right? That's just how capitalism works. So we, there is a paradigm-shifting set of new drugs called biologics that will get you 95%, 99% um, clear, right? And so the idea is that those medications are tens of thousands or hundreds of thousands of dollars a year. Now, of course, everybody wants the best for themselves. That makes perfect sense, right? And when you're able to externalize the cost, either to the American taxpayer through Medicare, Medicaid, or to your uh, institution uh, through your private insurance, right? if you're not paying out of pocket, of course you want the best for yourself and your your family. And, And anybody would feel that way, right? And of course, now getting to your greedy doctor bit, Now, if Humira or one of the other biologic uh, companies are taking us out to a nice dinner or sending us cool stuff in the mail, maybe we're a little bit more incentivized to, um, you know, it shouldn't be that way, but to recommend these medications, right? Um, But ultimately, the data speaks for itself, right? And the data is is conducted in a third-party, randomized, blinded kind of way, right? And the data speaks for itself. It's a better medication. Now, how do I tell someone, look, you deserve, you know, it becomes almost like a value judgment, like a moral judgment. You don't deserve because of your financial poverty or your lack of insurance, you don't deserve to be clear of your skin disease, right? I can get you mostly clear, but unfortunately, you just haven't earned or your place in our sort of socioeconomic pecking order is such that you're not going to be 100% clear. I'm sorry. Sucks to suck, right? That's one thing because uh, uh, skin diseases are largely quality of life issues but how do you tell someone's grandma, you don't deserve to get the best chemotherapy, right? You don't deserve to get um, an organ transplantation because you can't afford it, sorry, right? And so it's, those are very difficult conversations and oftentimes it's easy to make the insurance company or the government or any other third party thing, um, the enemy thing, right? And you, yeah, with a pharmaceutical company, why did the drugs have to be so expensive? Well, they want to recoup their $1 billion investment. Of course, they want to make a lot more money than that. They want to it's a capitalist system. But oftentimes, and this is the last point, and I want to hear your comments on it. Oftentimes, it's easy for me as a doctor, when your insurance company is denying the better medication to say, you know, those insurance companies, it, right? Here's your, here's your pills, right? For the, the less good medication, right? And so what what has been sort of, nice about it, uh, the sort of being able to externalize the, the, the guilt and the blame to sort of diffuse it throughout our healthcare system. It allows you to maintain that physician patient intimacy and trust. Um, but we're all sort of culpable here, right? Because we expect the best. We want to do the best. Yeah. The, the, um, did I lose you there?
0: No. Yeah. Oh, you're, I'm still here. I can hear you. Um, is your phone running out of battery or, uh, your, your, your device? Hey, bud. Can you hear me?
1: Yeah, I think I lost you just for a second. But what I was saying is that it's it's easy to diffuse the cost, but it's really, uh, or rather, the blame and the guilt. But it, there really are um, a lot of factors there at play, you know. Okay. And some of them are moral. They're moral discussions.
0: Um, that's really interesting. Something that I've um kind of been that I want to make an analogy to is like um, people spend. Absurd amounts of money saving sick cats. I subscribe to the LA Cat Sanctuary, which is a um, uh, Facebook group and they're like, oh, this cat needs four thousand dollars or it's going to die tomorrow and people they're just throwing money at this cat. I'm like, wow, four thousand dollars. You could save hundreds of cats. But this cat has um, uh, This particular cat is very cute and has cancer or something and you can prolong its life for two years. Uh, it doesn't make any sense to me to save that cat. Obviously, somebody likes that cat a lot. Um, you know, I, I am a soulless human being. Like, if my cats got sick I w- and I had to spend $4,000 on it, I'd be like, I I, I I would choose between that and donating $2,000 and getting new cats. You know, that, that'd be that be what I'd be thinking about. And it, it seems like those kind of things are very much at play when it's your grandma um, and you can prolong her life by one year. Or uh, and it's just a all grandmas ever, and you want do you want to have a thirty percent extra tax rate to save their lives? You know, it's it's it the change from what I guess my point is the change from it being your grandma versus a grandma. Um, yeah, it's, it's there's that there's the that
1: uh, there's that there's that famous Stalin quote, right? Like one death is a tragedy, a thousand deaths is a statistic, right? Wow, yeah,
0: and, that's right. That's you yeah. know,
1: and, and, I, and I and I see that play out every single day which is you, people have this sort of totally rational kind of tribal mentality that they want the best for themselves and their and, and their own, right? Uh, but then, you know, those are the same people that are often saying that, like, oh, we spend too much on health care. Or, like, we, you know, it's, it's crazy. We need to cut Obamacare. We need to gut it. You know, all these, like, uh, different things. We need to slash Medicare reimbursements, which is kind of all part of the same idea,
0: you know? We should ask a ta- or – Ocasio, I've never had to say her name out loud. Ortasio, Orcasio
1: Oca- I'm not sure. Ocasio-Cortez,
0: Cortez, AOC. We should ask her if uh, a white supremacist should get free health care. I think that that would get to the bottom of it, um, if they should be on single payer. Um, I remember a long time ago, we, we talked a lot more back when Obamacare was uh, um, uh, an issue. I remember we ran through the streets naked when uh, Obama got elected. That was a good time. I remember that well. Uh, I we we had our underwear on. Um, other people got full-blown, you know, black man's president. It's a big deal. You, you stated that there were two um, kind of uh, optimal, uh, you know, Nash equilibrium, whatever you want to call it. Two good systems for um, healthcare, and uh, you said that there's the capitalist one, which is you know what we had in America before Obamacare, and then there is the uh, socialist one which I presume is what's going on in um, uh, Scandinavia. Is that, is that still true? And I also, um, yeah, is that still true? Is that true that there's the kind of the two, and Obamacare yeah. tried to middle it and screwed up because of it?
1: it it's, it's way more nuanced than that. So we have never had, like, like, so this sort of, like, conservative wet dream of, like, this, like, pre-Obamacare era, like, hyper-capitalist, like, let the market set the market free, uh, kind of approach to healthcare We have never had it in America. Maybe like in the 1920s or 10s or something like that, where you like go to the doc and you say, doc, I've got a pain in my foot. And he says, well, you've got a splinter. Let me take it out. And you give him a chicken and you send him on your way. Like maybe that, <laughs> but like in the like modern era, like we've, no, we've never had that, right? There's always been a role uh, for government. It's sort of in- been increased or decreased at different times. Uh, Medicare, again, being for elderly people over the age of 65, usually Medicaid being for, Um, lower-income people. The VA system has sort of had more or less of an influence depending on, you know, different wars that we're deciding to fight uh, in, um, in kind of military healthcare in general. Uh, I will say that we are unique in the world as having, like, a much more market-oriented health insurance uh, uh, environment. Um, And and yes, on the other side of the spectrum, you're right. Countries like Spain, Um, you know, really all of uh, uh, Europe, even, you know, England and Scandinavia, certainly, they have like kind of traditional single payer. The government is the largest payer of healthcare by a lot, right? And, you know, let's say you want a hip replacement, and the government is saying, okay, well, you got to wait a couple of days, because we got to sometimes ration care a little bit, right? And you can have your supplemental private insurance will say, "Well, well, we'll put you in the next day, right? And you pay a couple of you know, hundred bucks a month or something like that to have that sort of uh, see the doctors you want in the time frame, right? So they have, they sort of have inklings of a, uh, of a hybrid system as well, but it really is, it really is a single-payer system. Now, Obamacare uh, was really, and, it, and it's funny that you, you prefaced it with like back when Obamacare was an issue, it's just crazy, like in the current era that we live in, that we just like have forgotten about Obamacare. It was like this really, they were trying to repeal it, but then it didn't get repealed, but it's like I- slowly and surely being loaded. So it's like kind of like a uh, perversion of what it like used to be and certainly never what it kind of aspired to be. But, and, and I remember you and I sort of addressed this a little bit um, when, when we sort of, uh, I remember we were walking outside your apartment we were talking a little bit about it, right? But Obamacare was seeking to address like this, these two major currents that are like fundamentally unresolvable in like a non-single-payer system, right? The first thing is pre-existing conditions, right? There are people that are born with congenital health problems, right? There are people that maybe don't take care of themselves in early life, but then they have a come to Jesus moment and they're like, now nah, I want to take care of myself." But they have a lot of like pre-existing damage that they've done to their body, right? People born with retardation or psychiatric illnesses, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, right? In a, in a single payer system, the government says, well, "Hey, we insure them, right? We take the risk, like that's our obligation to our people, right? We do that, right?" In a in a If you don't have Medicare or Medicaid, which is a very small subset of the population, you either are quite poor or you're over the age of 65, or you're employed in a large organization that provides you health insurance, right? You're kind of like, you don't really have an option in the uh, pre-Obamacare, you know, uh, Affordable Health Care Act era, right? You just can't get insurance. And that's terrible. Like, how terrible is that, that in an industrialized country that you, even if you want to, like, like that, but like that's a fundamental truth of capitalism that where there's a consumer, there should be a market for them, right? But there's just functionally de facto, there's nothing available for you because no one wants to insure you at a price that you can afford, right? So Obamacare tried to address that by eliminating pre-existing conditions, right, as a as a sort of uh, as a sort of exclusion criteria. Do you have so a point?
0: Flatten the pool, right, and, yeah. uh, and just kind of spread out the base, and uh,
1: yeah, well, in a sense, in a sense that they're. They're allowing suddenly an influx of a lot of really sick people that previously had no access to health care, right? Um, maybe they, they sort of float between poverty and sort of like getting a job. And so when they're like, uh, you know, below the limit, uh, the below the income limit, um, they, they maybe are on Medicaid for a little while. And then they like um, are highly disincentivized to work, but maybe they try to work a little bit. And now they no longer have health insurance. But the bottom line is, is that you have this huge influx, um, it, you know, under Obamacare. Um, affordable Healthcare Act—we really should call it—but but the but under the Affordable ACA, right? You have this huge influx now of, of like sick people that need to be insured, and the government is saying you cannot not insure them, right? Private. So the private uh, healthcare insurance companies are like, well, this is going to like totally destroy our ledger books. We used to be insanely profitable. Now we'll be, you know, le- a little less profitable, or maybe very less profitable. I don't know. So what they said is that <clears throat> we will have the mandate. And so the mandate says that everybody – hey, insurance companies, you have to insure all these, like, uh, really sick people. Well, here's a huge pool of, like, 19-year-olds that heretofore never required insurance or maybe were insured by their – you know, under their parents' health care. Well, now we're going to increase the age to 26. You can stay on your parents' health care until you're 26. And so you have, like, a lot of young, healthy people in that way. Uh, Or – you have to go and get healthcare insurance, or, or have a tax penalty, right? And people are very opposed to that. But I hope I've illustrated to you that in order to insure all these really sick people, you've got to have the, the individual mandate, and you got to have it's got to have some teeth, um, like a tax penalty. Otherwise, no one. Why would why would a 19 year old with no healthcare uh, problems? Why would they pay several hundred dollars a month for insurance that they're never going to utilize, right? Um, and so it. What else it did is that it um, increased. The Medicaid eligibility incomes to like something like 1.5 times poverty. So that was like a bunch of uh, people that maybe were not Medicaid eligible, but now are maybe more Medicaid eligible. So that was kind of like this pu- public private sort of uh, intersection. And then the final thing, something that we addressed before is that it created these exchanges, right? So that people could pool their risk on at a state level and they could, uh, it created tiers of plans. So you don't need to get the Cadillac plan. You can get catastrophic insurance, with a very high deductible, you know, the amount of money that you pay out of pocket or a very high copay, pay And that allowed there sort of be this kind of hybrid market solution with like increasing public spending, but also sort of um, allowing the market forces uh, to sort of still, you know, be uh, exert some control.
0: Very interesting. Um, a couple of things, Gibran, if you could uh, stay leaned back, you get excited yeah. and lean in and it kinda, you get a nose down view and you've got a great nose, but uh, I've got a, okay. It's a strong Pakistani nose. It's a shake nose. So, um, uh, okay, that's great. Let, so, it sounds like no matter what, people are going to be unhappy. There's always going to be rationing of healthcare. It sounds like in the a long time ago, it was just rationed based on if you could afford it. And then um, insurance came in. And so, then uh, as long as you didn't have a pre existing, t- excuse me, pre existing condition, then you got healthcare. And now it seems like everyone's getting healthcare uh, more or less, but it's the industries, the insurance companies that are rationing it. And if we went to single pair, it'd be the government that was rationing it, and so ultimately they're making the decision: Does your cat die, or does your cat get, um, you know, uh, spinal surgery? Does your grandma get the expensive psoriasis or whatever medicine? Um, so is, is that a fair characterization then?
1: Yeah, no, I think I mean it. it, it it's a a blunt characterization, but like surprisingly accurate.
0: Okay, great. Um, one last thing I want to get to before we close. Um, I I, I read stories about valiant and like, um, uh, Martin stress Another guy, I don't know how to say his name and I don't even know how to spell it. I know how to read it. You're uh,
1: you're talking about the, the pharmaceutical,
0: the pharma bro. Yeah. Pharma bro. Um, they bought all these IPs and then they jacked up the price. Obviously you want to create as much, um, value. Uh, you, you want to incentivize people researching these breakthrough drugs, obviously. But uh, the issue is that, like, you, if you buy a life-saving drug and jack up the price, that's clearly anti-American. It's very capitalist, but anti-American. Would um, preventing uh, companies from selling IP would that help? Is there is there any any way to solve that kind of issue?
1: You know, I don't. I, I I'm not really that kind of fluent in the like medical IP sort of domain. Um, particularly in the sort of pharmaceutical IP domain. What I will say sort of, so basically the, the story of uh, Scarelli, I don't, I don't know how to pronounce his name either. The story of the bro is this, right? There's this medication called Darapin, uh, Daraprim, right? Which is um, useful like in one rare, like quite rare um, AIDS defining illness. So it's like patients with AIDS can develop this opportunistic infection that when they don't have an immune system, they can get this, like, uh, I wanna say it's a parasitic infection, right? And there's this, like, medication, but it's like a few hundred or a few thousand people a year that are getting this this problem. And there's this medication, it was like this dirt cheap, like super old medication that would be, you know, 30 cents a pill or 50 cents a pill or something like that, maybe a little bit more, right? And the idea is that there's no incentive whatsoever for, like, Pfizer or, you know Merck or whatever to make this medication, right? Like they're gonna they're gonna use their um, their their capital and their you know sort of uh, you know their manufacturing process to make new medications, make things that are on patent, you know that they can really monetize and make a lot of money of, right? So this one medication it happened to be uh, oh it happened to be manufactured by this like one pharmaceutical company that I want to say this guy purchased the company mm. or somehow had like a controlling stake in it. And he's like, now I'm like one guy who makes it. it. It doesn't make sense. Cause you know, like from a sort of material science, pharmaceutical, industrial process, it's kind of like expensive to start making a medication from scratch. Um, it, it's fairly capital intensive. It requires like a raw ingredients. And, you know, it, you know, and, and so the, the financial incentives have to be there. Right. Um, So he sort of recognized that no one else is going to sort of crowd into his space to make this medication. If he jacks up the price, he took this sort of calculated risk. And he also sort of took this risk that like, look, these few hundred people that have the disease a year, they probably are not going to form like a cohesive, like interest group in the way that people like, you know, act out in the HIV crisis, you know, like back in the day, like they got together and they like, you know, rallied in the streets. He was like, you know, these are people basically at the end of life. This is like, you know, there are a few hundred they're going to, you know, and maybe they're not paying it themselves, right? The hospital will eat the cost, you know, the insurance companies will eat the cost because it's like a kind of life-saving drug for this like small subset of patients. So he took this calculated risk and he just like jacked up the price like 5050 I don't know. I don't remember. exactly, like a lot of money. He jacked it up, right? And for whatever reason, um, I, I, should, I should say that this is happening all the time with other drugs right it's just like a slower more gradual process of like a few hundred percent a year or something like that right um so the bottom line is is that but i think that it was this sort of flashpoint in like the american psyche the whole conversation about obamacare was happening it was sort of like you know just before the trump era and so what happened is that um you know the sort of the uh, you know american conscience about healthcare sort of rallied around this issue it's like this like kind of malevolent dude you look at him he's got a kind of his, like rat bastard face right and these are <laughs> patients these are patients with AIDS they're dying of AIDS like who could like be more like you know who, who's more deserving of your pity than a person dying of AIDS right this is like a life-saving drug and he like he did it in such a like cold calculated shitty way that like y- you got this sort of like emotional response for the American public
0: it's almost so, like out of a movie how evil he was
1: yeah yeah it was like it this was like some B-rated, like, like, you know, like villain kind of thing to do. Like, Oh, I'm going to raise the praise on this, like, hi, you know, they have to like, I don't know, race down ski mountain to like stop this (laughs) dude, you know, I don't know, ski down the mountain. I just imagine like this kind of like, yeah, it's like, it is like a setup. He's like a kind of like a B-rated movie villain here. But um, bottom line is that it was sort of a more emotional reaction of the American people. Now, like, T- to answer your question, is there a way to prevent this? No, not really. I mean, yes, the, let, like, let the market do its thing, right? So if enough people want the medication, some, you know, some other company is incentivized to make it themselves. You could have, for example, the government directly subsidizing the cost or the production of these medications, of these sort of ne- what we call them neglected diseases, right? rare diseases. And they do, they do put in some money. Um, you know, there, there are grants that they get. So you could, you know, but then people get all uh, in a huff about, you know, government spending on health, you know, infrastructure, right? Or, or rather healthcare uh, spending and pharmaceuticals, right? Um, you could, you know, there's sort of a prize based system that you could award prizes or other incentives to pharmaceutical companies um, in order to produce this like kind of loss leading medication, but maybe it benefits them for, for tax purposes for other other medications that they're developing or maybe fast track another thing it's like the FDA process is like a notoriously slow and kind of difficult process to clear. So maybe you help them to fast track another med. you kind of bribe them, right. To produce these medications. So there are like theoretically innovative solutions, right. But it requires kind of collective action. And I just, you know, for these other rare diseases, genetic diseases and stuff like that, um, you know, I, I don't see the sort of like, um, i don't i don't sort of see the sort of cohesiveness uh and the sort of political will to necessarily get this kind of collective action that it requires you know um i i i i can uh, to use like a slightly off topic example but like the the guns issue is kind of like an, a sort of relevant issue right there's like this like very very strong very small politically active minority group uh know that are organized by the nra but it's like really it's a couple hundred thousand people probably maybe a few million right but certainly not 30 million or 50 million or 100 million of people that feel very strongly about guns right and they will do everything in their power to make sure that uh you know that gun legislation goes the way that they want or there's an absence of it and then you have the sort of people that were like the victims of like a mass shooting and they're very like politically charged but the like rest of us like all 270 million of us we're kind of like, yeah, it's really tragic when like a bunch of kids get shot and like, it's really sad and like thoughts and prayers for a few, few days, but then we just kind of move on with our lives. Right. And so there's just not, not that political will. So it's the same thing with like rare diseases, neglected diseases, a variety of other things, right. You have like this, like highly, um, financially, uh, uh, you know, vested and, and, and sort of like very lucrative, um, interest group right that has a lot of lobbying power and they're sort of making sure that their policy is going through and then you have this sort of like collective american uh sort of attitude of like yeah it sucks that drug prices are so expensive but what are you gonna do you know and it's only these like sort of flashpoint cases like this pharma bro guy that we really suddenly realize how like ridiculous the whole thing is
0: okay cool well this has been uh, a lot of fun jabron um Always a pleasure talking to you you're very well spoken very smart um, uh, so as you as I told as I warned you ahead of time what we would like to end the get, end the, um, end the podcast on is the benediction which is uh, advice prayer or a blessing that you'd like to leave upon the audience uh, Gibran for today's benediction
1: yeah so I, I just want to thank you first of all I think we, I mean we covered a extremely wide range of topics today we talked about uh, medical error we talked about uh, healthcare financing. We talked about um, sort of the you know public pro- private uh, uh, divide and, and 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 sort of all the things that are wrong with healthcare um, and, and and a lot of the difficulties that we face and sort of the uniqueness of the American experience. Um, so we talked a lot about like thirty thousand foot view, sort of like like these are sort of like policy issues and like um, sort of the intersection of economics and and, and healthcare, right? Um, what I wanna leave you with today, and I appreciate the opportunity to talk through some of these issues that I've been thinking a lot about a lot about. but it helps, it's nice to vocalize them. But you know what I wanna leave you with today um, and what I would leave your audience with today, right? It's easy to lose sight, you know, when you're talking about, you know, things as, uh, you know, numbers and, and costs and, and, and sort of like um, if we can get lost in the sort of political jargon and, and all the rest of it, right? Uh, but I sort of have this unique opportunity to see like the individuals every day, right? Who, who are sort of um, you know caught up in this healthcare uh, infrastructure and milieu and sort of navigating it, maybe with varying degrees of health literacy, and um, and you know they're they're sick and they they want to be well and they want to live the same kind of like normal life that you know the American dream, right? Um, and so I'm, I'm reminded, and this is what I would give you as like the like uh, the quote, uh, and then I'll elaborate just very briefly on it. Um, you know. The, the quote goes something like, uh, you know, I'm going to mess it up, but like, uh, it's sort of like be patient or be uh, uh, mindful of uh, other people, uh, you know, uh, because you don't uh, you don't really know what the struggles that they're facing, what the kind of constant battles they're facing. I'm sure there's a much more eloquent way than it was said before. But um, bottom line is, is that it's something along those lines. right? Be, be sort of like patient with people, be mindful because you don't know the the the. Uh, the individual challenges that they're facing. So, in my experience, like I try to remember that sort of humility and um, having an opportunity to see disease and um, sickness every day. Um, it makes me feel incredibly appreciative of like being healthy myself, right? And having like most people around me be pretty healthy. I mean, health is one of those things that you, when you lose it, you suddenly become aware that nothing else matters and you just want to you do everything to get your health back, right? Um, so, I would say be appreciative of your health. And then also, you know, when you see people, you don't know the challenges and struggles they're facing. It's easy in this sort of like very fractured sort of tribal culture, this sort of like uh, polarized culture that we live in. It's easy to dehumanize people, um, but you don't know the challenges that they're facing. Um, I get to see it through the lens of healthcare, care, um, but, um, you know, people are the way that they are because of a lot of factors that have brought them to that point. So I would recommend being patient, being empathetic with other people. Um, and, um, and I, and I think if we, if we practice that in our, and we're mindful of that in our daily life, um, I think it'll make the world a better place.
0: Holy shit, Jabron. That is the most empathetic thing I've ever heard you say. (laughs) Um, uh, God damn. Yeah. That's super important. Um, what a perfect note to end this on. And, uh, I think we should extend that to doctors as well, who are doing their best to try to save lives and, You know, I I I joke about them being greedy or intelligent sociopaths, but uh, every every single one of them wants the best for their patients. And um, yeah, so uh, may you be mindful. Oh, in closing, before before I sign off, please give me numbers, likes, subscribes. This is the only reason I do this is to pad my ego with numbers. So please give me views. Please give me likes. Please tell your friends. Um, But in closing, may you be mindful of other people's struggles and may you go in godlessness thanks a lot everybody adios thank you all right cool